Hello and welcome to Hong Kong Heritage, and here's wishing you a very happy new year. In the past two programs, I spoke with two relatives of former prisoners of war who were interned at the Stanley Civilian Camp. This week, in the final segment, looking back at the internees who were imprisoned in Hong Kong after the Japanese military invasion in December 1941, I talked to British artist Veronica Hayward about her father Graham, who was the former director of the then Royal Hong Kong Observatory. With the help of the current director Shun Chi Ming and historian Jeffrey Emerson, Veronica recently published her father's diary account of his time in the Sham Shui Po prisoner of war camp called. It won't be long now. The diary of a Hong Kong prisoner of war. Graham Hayward and his colleague Leonard Starbuck were the first prisoners of war in Hong Kong. They were captured on December the eighth, nineteen forty-one, in the New Territories after heading to Ao Tao near Yunlong to pick up some weather equipment. I joined Veronica Hayward at the number one house at the observatory in Chimsa Choi, where she would spend her childhood after the war. Sitting here at number house number one had. Is it quite strange, or just tell me how you feel? Yes, well, it is. It's it's very. It, it's quite emotionally moving, actually, to be in the same house, in the same room, possibly the same bed as when when I was four and a half years old. <laughs> I've had a, a very pleasant morning just coming up here, Veronica, to uh, see you here at House Number One. Just next to the old observatory building, and just coming up that path, isn't it gorgeous? It's like being in the middle of a jungle, isn't it? Yes. As children, this the, the compound was our playground. We hardly ever left except to go to school, and and then a, f- a couple of times to the cinema. So you um, spent very, very formative years here. Um, and um, tell me about growing up in this sort of compound. Well, we were quite a gang. The, the Starbuck kids, the three of them, and two Ramage kids, and my sister and myself. My sister always ended up being the head of the gang, and we rampaged. We used the whole compound as a, a large playground. You were actually the, the daughter of the director of the observatory. That, that's right. He was um, Graham Haywood, um, and he he had he wasn't the director before the war. He joined joined the observatory in, in the early thirties, and then you know met my mother and they married in in St Andrews, and and then from the wedding photographs they had no idea of what was about to happen, and it happened. And my mother was and sister were evacuated to Australia. My father stayed to do his duty. I'd been thought of. Um, and um, he was one of the first to be captured. He was sent out to the, the then Chinese border to a um, magnetic station to bring in valuable equipment because they knew that the, the armies were uh, moving fast down through China. Um, and anyway, he, he was behind the building, and Len Starbuck, his, his colleague, was in the front of the building, and Len was actually the first to be surrounded and... My father saw what was happening and thought thought he'd be shot if he fled. So so he went in. He he raised his hands and 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 joined them. <laughs> yeah. So you had these two observatory men up in the new territories collecting, as you say, valuable equipment, and they were in fact the first two prisoners of war 
of the invasion of Hong Kong in 19, December 1941. So um, now Graham Hayward um, wrote a diary while he was in Sham Chi Po. That's been turned into um, a book now. It won't be long now, The Diary of a Hong Kong Prisoner of War. It's interesting to see the photograph of your father on the back. Gosh, he does look young, doesn't he? Yes, yes. And he's, the photo on the back is doing what he, what he really loved doing, which he, he was always always a scouter, and he's obviously having some scouty expedition to the Hong Kong hills in that photo. In terms of Graham and Valerie Hayward, what sort of life would they have been having in the late 1930s here? Well, my father loved the countryside and, and walking and climbing, so he'd, he'd, every weekend he'd organise expeditions, head, head for the hills, and, and then out of it came, in 1938, his, his, his other book, um, rambles in Hong Kong. So you've got this rather idyllic life, very quiet out of thought in the 1930s and then of course everything changes like it did in many, many places in the world with the Japanese invasion of Hong Kong. So in terms of life in Sham Shui Po, what does he tell you about, you know, obviously there's big, big issues of malnutrition but um, does he sort of go right through, did he write it in a daily fashion and did he have enough paper? He, he must have written it on something that looked like that, that old-fashioned lavatory paper, sort of, sort of very thin tracing paper. Um, and, and then he, he types it up when, when he left, when they were liberated. He, he never talked about it during his life. We only discovered the manuscript after his death. In the diary, as you say, that was written partly on this sort of uh, to- like toilet paper, mm. uh, this sort of thin tracing paper in the camp... Um, well, how does he how does he write? Does he do a sort of daily? Uh, is it is it a way for him to tick off the days? Is that how he's writing? No, no. It was um, different subject matters. Like one chapter's headed malnutrition. Um, others others would be. Um, he, he doesn't. Funny enough, he doesn't talk about the scouts that he ran, and yet it must have taken up, up a big part of their time. So he ran scouts in the camp? Yes, he did. Rover scouts. <laughs> Keep people <laughs> occupied. <laughs> in what sort of activities? Well, well, I'll read you a bit of a poem, if you like. There's a funny poem. Here we are. It's um, P.O.W. Rover, it's called. In Shumpshi Po, in Shumpshi Po, your life may seem a trifle slow, but if you join our rover crew, you'll find no end of things to do. The doleful dumps will cease to trouble you, although you are a P-O-W. <laughs> he strikes me as somebody who, well, he was active. He would have been physically strong at that time, even though you say that subsequent to the war in the later years, every time he got a cold, he would also go down with a malarial fever. So he had that kind of impact. But it strikes me that from a character perspective, he was somebody who could perhaps motivate others and perhaps inspire them. I think so. Even though when, when he came into the camp, because he wasn't army, he was sort of designated a private's place and the, lots of other commanding officers around, you know, to, in, in fact, that, that was quite a, quite a savior, the fact that they, they kept a sort of military routine in the camp. And, and, you know, the Japanese seemed to have some respect for the, for the officers. So, so it was under under sort of British army habits. But can you explain to me just just what he knew and how he'd been trained? Well, he he'd been to Oxford and um, t- 
to New College Oxford and he'd done a science degree and then, then he got an MA uh, in, in science again. Then he actually had a, uh, one of his, I think his MA was published in, with great pride to him in the Royal Society Journal. And then, um, he specialized in meteorology and astronomy too as well. And he, he was offered a place in, in an expedition to, to see what happened to Scott in the Antarctic. Um, and this was the 1920s, and he was going to be the meteorologist on this expedition. And um, the, the funding for the boat slumped, <laughs> just like the, whole, the rest of the world went into a recession. So they didn't have a boat to get to the Antarctic, so that, that fell through. But the next job was, was fascinating. He got a job in the Cotswolds at a weather station, and his job was, he was employed by the war office, it was called then, to find out what happened to gas in hilly country, um, just in case in the next war they used um, gas. Meaning what, mustard gas? Or? Yeah, the, the, it was very much used in the First World War, and they were afraid you know, the next war it would be used widely. But his results actually were of great benefit to fruit growers because he, he, he discovered in his researches where frost would settle and where mists would settle and things like that. So, and no use to the War Department. So then he heard about the job in Hong Kong, to, and with a sense of adventure, he, he applied, and he got the job working working for the observatory. Back to um, his diary, uh, which has been made into a book. It won't be long now. The Diary of a Hong Kong Prisoner of War by Graham Hayward. So you've described how, you know, he was involved, he was a keen scouter. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you say that it, rather than going day by day by day by, with the... Mm-hmm. Because I've heard this before, that sometimes a diary was a way to get, get over the general monotony mm-hmm. of, of the place. But you, you, you say he has various subjects. Yes. Well, there's... Malnutrition, which you've heard about before, work when, when they were used as slave laborers. And, and my father describes minutely his, the work he had to do building Kaitak Airport, um, enlarging it. Um, and they destroyed a, a, an incredible hill that had a rock on it to widen the airport, Kaitak. In the course of my working in the observatory since 1986. I have learned always that uh, we have a very good culture of um, professionalism. Our ex-director, even when in- interned during the World War II at Stanley, they still have the perseverance to continue the weather measurements uh, under such a difficult situation. Yeah, remind me, what was the director called who was in Stanley? That was uh, Mr. Evans, B.D. Benjamin Davis um, um, Evans. Do you know how he did the weather measurements at Stanley? Actually, frankly speaking, I, I still didn't. I still don't know because he also recorded rainfall. This must be some very innovative uh, things that he has done to to allow that uh, to happen. And then he just wrote the measurements down. Yes, exactly. So, so I very I'm also very um, interested in knowing more about how he did it at the camp. But so far, I haven't yet got the uh, links. But uh, I've been trying to to approach uh, people, experts uh, in the Stanley internment, and therefore I have a good uh, association with my um, former teacher, Mr. Jeff Emerson, and 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 also helping who he who helped a lot uh, in um, getting this diary published. 
that way I, I went to 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 take out well, take our uh, interesting trip to to Hampshire this uh, February uh, to to the home uh, of uh, Mr. Haywood to take out the albums and uh, and documents. And uh, I, I did find uh, a few more interesting stuff that uh, we never seen before, such as such as the um, title recordings at the Sam Shepard camp, done on uh, a piece of um, uh, POW uh, camp uh, paper, and uh, and also his ideas about uh, the future of the observatory after after the war. So he also already making plans about the future. My thanks to Veronica Haywood and Shun Chi Ming, talking there about the recently published diary of Veronica's father, Graham Haywood, called "It Won't Be Long Now: The Diary of a Hong Kong Prisoner of War." David Bellis of the Hong Kong History website Guolo.com has been instrumental in collecting a number of the diaries of former prisoners of war, which you can see on his website. He's also providing a daily email service where you can receive accounts of the experiences of prisoners from 74 years ago for the three years and eight months of their incarceration. Please email him at david at Guolo.com to subscribe. David shared with me excerpts from some of those diary accounts. Yes, we started off with the Stanley Camp, but as time's gone by, we've also had diaries from people who were outside, living in Hong Kong, and it, it just gives a really different, uh, a different view of life. And it's good. Sometimes you get a major event, and you get different viewpoints, so it it all helps. So, in front of us here, we've got uh, a number of excerpts from some of those diaries that you've chosen to give us a flavour, at least, of of life, uh, both in civilian uh, camp, but also um, also some military experiences as well. Yes, just to uh, give you a, a broad picture of of what you might expect if you subscribe. So the, the Harry Ching. Now, um, I was actually in touch with um, Harry Ching's son in Australia, and Harry Ching was editor of the South China Morning Post uh, just before the war. Yes, and afterwards as well for many, many years. And he wrote of his experiences. He was、uh, as a Eurasian. He wasn't interned, so he continued living in his house in Happy Valley with the family. And we first first quote I've got from him is on the twelfth of December, nineteen forty one. So the big news that day was that that Kowloon had fallen. So here's what he has to say: a day of readjustment, alerts, and nuisance shelling of the island without much damage. The communique announcing the withdrawal from the mainland declared, "We have retired within our fortress, and from the shelter of our main defences, we will hold off the enemy until the strategical situation permits of relief." Driving myself home at sunset, I had my first taste of shell fire. Two whistled and crashed in the naval dockyard as I dodged a military vehicle coming fast on the wrong side of the road. We are now besieged in our fortress, but we do not feel very impregnable. The Kowloon Hills have become mysterious and menacing. Normally, the friendly horizon—they are now the hostile limit of our mental vision. The gates of hope have closed. Beyond them is a receding universe. Claustrophobia lays a probing finger upon us. The day closed in an atmosphere of tension and depression. Park the car. Remove the rotor arm as instructed. There will also be a fifth column on the island. It's a fairly quiet night, enlivened by pistol and revolver shots as suspect prowlers are chased home. But at about 11 p.m., a great explosion. Gosh, that really does. I mean, obviously, Harry Ching was a writer to a certain extent, but、uh, it does evoke. Just the fear. I mean, I've you know I've often thought that you know you're talking within a few miles distance. There's this、uh, 
uh, invading army coming in. There's this complete lack of knowledge on how this is going to unfold. So he does he does really convey that nervousness on the 12th of December 1941. Everything that these people would have, have heard about events in China over the last few years and how the Japanese troops uh, treated cities after they'd won, uh, you had all of that in the back of people's mind, of course, so a lot of tension. I think also returning to the diaries of that time and obviously some of these recollections are written after the event because people are so involved in daily survival some of the others who wrote diaries in camp it was a way of not only just documenting what was going on um, for ones like um, Graham Haywood for example who was in Shamshupo um, it was a way of telling others what his experiences had been but I think for many it was also a way of overcoming boredom uh, on a daily basis but um, do you feel also that the fact that these diaries are written pretty much uh, at the time or very shortly afterwards that they sometimes you know it hasn't allowed for memory and decades in between to actually change anything that, that's why I get excited about this whole project that you can really subscribe and pretty much in real time day by day you're getting what the people are thinking and a lot of it's not you know, it's not earth-shattering stuff. It's the troubles with hunger. It's messy relationships that have started off in camp and have fallen apart. And but you, you really are getting the unvarnished view. People, yes, in some cases, were writing, um, especially the, the memoirs that are written after are often written for family to read. But when it's a diary, you know, it, it tends to be what was running through their head at the time, not, not the unvarnished truth. When families sometimes have literally after the person has died they've discovered these diaries and um, they're then thinking well they see other diaries that you've published on your website and they think well we can add to that historic account but as a you know you're overseeing this large website full of history it's very educational but do you also when you're seeing some of this personal suffering do you also feel a personal link to it do you feel a sense of responsibility with the content I think these stories are really the, the most moving things that we have on the website. The website covers a broad variety. A lot of it's very factual. A lot of it's a building. And when was it knocked down? When was it complete? But yes, when you get families letting you share information about their parents or grandparents, and it's not always flattering. As I say, the, the things that run through our heads and that we write down in our personal diaries don't always reflect us in the best light. So I'm very grateful that they, they let us post it on the website. It's the 24th of December, so getting towards the end of the fighting, and we hear from R.E. Jones. R.E. Jones was a prison officer, but the prison officers were also part of the volunteers. And so as the fighting moved to Stanley, they switched to a, a military role. So volunteers? Yes, the Hong Kong volunteers, one of the, the large groups of soldiers here, and they were all made up of people who were living in Hong Kong, local residents. He writes, All set for night watches. But at 7.30pm, Major Forsyth took over and our section changed position to the southeast corner of a wooden hut east of the police station. 8.50pm. Heard the rattle of Jap tanks on Island Road as they approached the village. Two knocked out by anti-tank gun and hell broke loose. Everything opened up on them and the Jap troops with them who were urged on by peculiar cries from their commander. The Japs spread out each side of the road and bombed our lads out. We got onto the road, hoping to get a better vantage point could only see as far as the police station we shot out by our own men grant section i think bullets tore up the road three feet from me got onto fort road to cover the middlesex position ran out of ammunition so retired hundred yards to the garage 
Middlesex grenaded out. We made our way to the fort about 2.30am. Shows the chaos, doesn't it? Yes, other people who were in that area say it was like living through a cheap gangster movie. With bullets and things, you know, noise, chaos everywhere. Barbara Anslow, I've heard about from a variety of different people. She's in her late 90s, lives in England, and um, has been um, invaluable to a number of historians um, for recounting um, life during uh, the Second World War here in Hong Kong. Now, uh, tell me, Barbara was actually, she was, Barbara Anslow was a, a government worker? Yes, she was working with the ARP, the Air Raid Precautions Group. And so she was originally out at Happy Valley, that's where their office were, office was. And then they moved to the tunnels below Government House. So she was working in there and tells us of having to dash across the road to CSO. She needed to go to the loo and the, the smell of the fresh wood inside the tunnels. So she's got a lot of stories about that time. We've even got a, a picture of her taken on, I think it's Christmas Day in the morning. That's the last day and she's there with her tin helmet on outside the, the tunnel. Here she tells us about the 25th of December, 1941. She writes, Left work at 3pm. Spent Christmas Day with Sid at the hospital. Set up on the first floor of the Hong Kong Hotel. While I was sitting on the floor beside Sid, Mrs Johnson, a friend who was helping the wounded, came over to us and said, I've bad news for you. We've surrendered. She was half crying and wouldn't look at us. Sid shouted to his neighbour, Did you hear that? We've surrendered! The news passed about quickly and everywhere up popped bearded faces because everyone naturally queried it, especially as shelling still going on and planes overhead. Then a news bulletin was circulated just afterwards, giving heartening news about our defences. But then we heard confirmation of surrender and still we could hardly believe it. We'd all laughed so much at the peace mission that had come a few days earlier and been rejected. The peace mission? The Japanese sent over a boat with a, a white truce flag and a couple of European residents. There's a, a famous picture of a lady who insisted on coming with her dashing dogs, I think. And so they were coming over to request the surrender and they were sort of told, we don't surrender and sent smartly back. That would have saved a few lives? Yes, yes. That wasn't what, uh, what we'd been ordered to do, though. That was Churchill's message was no surrender. After the surrender, the Europeans in Hong Kong, mostly Europeans, were rounded up and shipped off to a, a bunch of hotels, and we use the term loosely, they were basically brothels around the Seungwan area, um, locked up there for a while. And Barbara Anslow again, 21st of January 1942, it's the day that they moved to Stanley Camp. In the morning, we were given a quarter of an hour to pack and get out of the hotel, then march down to Vaux Road. We boarded a top-heavy Macau steamer and set out for Stanley. It could have been lovely, such a beautiful day. Our boat was too big to go right up to the jetty at Stanley, so we had to clamber over the side of the ferry, onto the side of the junk, then jump into the body of the junk. Poor Mrs Grant weighed over 15 stones. She cried out from the side of the ferry. She just couldn't make the transfer, but somehow she did. After they arrived at Stanley, the diaries, as you can guess, they, they settled down. It's going to be three years, eight months of often monotonous life. But we do have some very dramatic moments as well, and we're very fortunate to have received diaries of, of some of them. This one is from an America lady, Ella Buck, and she was part of the big repatriation that happened in, uh, in 1942. This is when the Japanese and the Americans arranged, arranged an exchange. So we've got a, a ship full of Japanese internees sailing out of America, ships from Asia picking up American internees, and they sailed to a port in Africa, a neutral port, and then that's where the exchange happens, and this is what she's writing about. 
So Ellerbuck, 23rd of July, 1942. Today started very early, 5.30 a.m. for me. Breakfast was early and we were to be all set at 9 o'clock for the exchange. After 23 days, we were again to move to different quarters. Right on the appointed time, we were left off the gangplank to go over to the Grips home. That's the ship that they'll be sailing to, to America on. Arriving there, we were directed to the upper deck and told to sit down. No cabins were to be assigned until evening as they had to clean the rooms. First, the Japs were taken off the lower decks and turned off over to their ship. At noon, we discovered that we were to be served a buffet lunch on long tables out on deck, and we shall never forget that grand sight. Big plates of cold turkey, ham, salami, pressed ham, cheese, olives, pickles, fruits. Really, we couldn't believe it. Were we really seeing such good food again? And they had the best bread. Oh, how we did eat. 1943 was a very nervous time for anyone who was uh, in Hong Kong. It was a time when the Japanese secret police were, were doing a purge. Harry Ching then, as we said, he was living outside camp. He was living in his house in Happy Valley. He'd already been told he was a, a marked man for his work on the, the newspapers before. Anyway, the 17th of February, 1943, the day he's arrested. Through the gate into the yard of Le Calvaire Convent, Eastern Gendarmerie headquarters, down the steps to an inside passage. Much chattering noise, terrific smell, realised people are behind those bars. Put in cell four measured about 32 by 8 feet. No privacy, place stinking, buckets not emptied every day, no drainage, lice in your hair and everywhere. But nights are best, the dark hides the ugliness. Trams run by outside, motor cars honk, children play, someone in a building practices piano. What a difference a wall can make. Then a wonderful day. Mum sends food, also underclothes and pyjamas. But they're my undoing. Had a fight with the Formosan. Pajamas too much for my nail and fell on his basin. He slapped my leg. I punched his nose and the fight was on. I could hit him, but I wasn't hurting him. I decided let him hit me and get it over. He wouldn't stop in pain, bleeding and exhausted. Room made for me near the toilet buckets in a bad way. Formosan invites me to return to the other end of cell. Still in pain, I return to the old space. The diary accounts that are available on grulo.com. If you subscribe, you can actually see day-by-day accounts um, of what was going on in December 1941 and onwards through the next three years, eight months of incarceration at Stanley and other camps throughout Hong Kong. One of the key figures in that is Barbara Anslow. She's now in her late 90s in England and um, has been very important to historians here. At the beginning, you've got photos of her on Christmas Day in her tin hat as part of the air raid precaution group. Um, And then right throughout the war, she gives her account. And this is an account um, very much at the end of the war or nearing the end of the war. Yeah, so we've we've gone through the the mundane, repetitive sections through the middle, middle part of the diaries. And then, of course, around August 1945, things start hotting up. There are all these rumors buzzing around camp. So here she is writing on the 16th of August, 1945. Camp full of rumours, news of a truce, armistice and peace. And she lists some of the rumours. And then the clincher at the end is, we were each given a roll of US toilet paper today. And she says in the the comments that it was a first for three and a half years. They just had this sort of Chinese scratchy, waxy paper that had been given to them. And they thought, hang on, if they're giving us proper toilet paper, maybe this really is peace. What also is interesting there from Barbara Anslow's account is the fact that after, that, you know, they know that the war is over, 
but in fact the Japanese stay as, as sort of pseudo administrators in between. There's this time where it's almost safer and perhaps uh, more reliable for food to remain in the camp. Yes, they're actually recommended not to go out exactly for that for that reason. So there was this very strange period, almost a couple of weeks, where we know it surrendered, but we are seeing people from the other camps coming in. There are people making trips into town to see what remains of houses or, or factories or you know places where they worked. But basically, it's the administration is still run by the Japanese. David Bellis there of Gulo.com. So do subscribe if you would like to receive emails with those diary accounts. And do have a look at Gulo.com for lots of information about Hong Kong history. My thanks also to Veronica Haywood and Observatory Director Shun Chi Ming talking there on Graham Haywood's account of his time in the Sham Shui Po prisoner of war camp. It won't be long now, the diary of a Hong Kong prisoner of war. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.